Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Uh, Kevin here bringing you a true crime episode this week. One of the easternmost provinces of Canada, Nova Scotia, is a pleasant and scenic place to visit today, but it has a colorful and sometimes checkered history. From bank robbers who used P.T. Barnum's circus as a diversion, to voters who went to the polls brandishing clubs and pistols, to the world's largest man-made explosion until the testing of the atomic bomb, Nova Scotia's history is filled with unbelievable yet true tales. In this episode, I am joined by a returning friend of the podcast, Dean Job. Dean is a professor of journalism and a member of the faculty of the Master of Fine Arts in Creative Nonfiction program at the University of King's College in Halifax. He has an enduring interest in true crime and has written several books on the subject. Dean joins me again to discuss his latest book, Daring, Devious, and Deadly, True Tales of Crime and Justice from Nova Scotia's Past, which is a collection of 15 remarkable true crime stories. After you're done listening to today's episode, if you want to listen to Dean's first appearance on the podcast, check out Empire of Deception with Dean Job from February 2019. There is a link to that episode down in your description for this episode in your podcast app. Now on to Daring, Devious, and Deadly with Dean Job. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Dean Job. Welcome to the podcast again. Welcome back. Well, thanks, Kevin. Uh, so uh, very glad to hear your voice again. Uh, it's been uh, about a year and a half since we spoke before. Uh, last time we talked about your book, uh, Empire of Deception, uh, which, was, which was wonderful. Uh, but uh, you're back again today uh, talking about a new book, uh, Daring, Devious, and Deadly, uh, true tales of crime and justice from North from Nova Scotia's past. So thank you so much for coming back. Well, thank you. Um, so, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, and uh, you know what's uh, what interests you in true crime. Well, I uh, uh, I started my career. I'm, I'm now uh, an academic. I, I teach in a journalism program and a nonfiction writing uh, master's program at a university in Halifax. I'm from uh, Nova Scotia. My background in uh, in university was uh, local history, uh, uh, history of Nova Scotia and Canada. And uh, my first job 30-some years ago in journalism was... Uh, was covering the courts I, uh, when I started out. So as I was covering contemporary trials, I got interested in the history of law and uh, the, uh, that led to uncovering older cases and, and that made true crime kind of a passion. And um, what I think is, um, uh, certainly as, a, as someone writing about true crime, if you're trying to engage a reader, um, these are dramatic stories. I mean, there's always a lot at stake. I mean, there's there's a tragedy. There's uh, some violation or laws broken. Someone's harmed. There's a victim. There's the, the hunt for uh, 
perhaps the suspect who may have fled or or certainly the quest for justice to uh, to ensure that the right person is not his person is on trial and the, the courtroom drama of whether or not the evidence will be there to convict the guilty or if uh, the innocent someone who's innocent may actually not be exonerated so so they're 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 great stories but they also are a window on the past they they really they show people at their best in this quest for justice they also show people at their worst in terms of what human beings are capable of doing to each other and i think they bring history alive in a way that uh, that the more the veneer of the sort of the respectable way people want to be remembered uh this is different this is uh people behaving badly this is people at their worst and it can really give you an insight into human nature and society and i suppose the the lesson is people haven't changed all that much some of us are as are as greedy and capable of unethical or 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 illegal behavior as uh we were in the past yeah i think that that aspect of you know these are these are real stories about real people that really make it fascinating because you know i mean i'm sure we've all watched crime drama or you know csi or something like that and you know they're interesting and compelling but at the end of the day you know that there's something that a writer cooked up in their imagination mm -hmm. uh the fact that you know these stories actually happened and sometimes in very sensational and unbelievable ways uh just makes it really compelling yeah, and uh, you know it's essential. It should go without saying that true crime's true, but you know we see movies based on true crime, and uh, you know uh, based on a true story, inspired by a true story. But uh, you know, in my craft, uh, this is what happened. I don't speculate. I don't embellish. If I don't know what something looked like from contemporary descriptions or or old photos, I don't use it. But I make the most of what I can find, and and there's just a, a trove of material. Uh, I have cases going back 100, 150 or more years, and a lot of those, if there's court records or case reports because of appeals that that led to some refinement of the law that meant these cases were preserved, I exploited those. But what I found was uh, the early journalists. Uh, produced verbatim reports of virtually transcripts of trials and that's an insight into um, people's relationship to true crime it's there's a renaissance now uh, tv shows podcasts uh, websites uh, internet sleuths doing their own investigation of cold cases i mean there's an explosion of interest in true crime but if you look at old newspapers some of them might have had only four pages and easily they'd hand two over two whole pages no illustrations just blow by blow word by word uh account of a major trial so people have always been absorbed with this and i think like you say i mean this this isn't uh uh this isn't a, a story that uh, may still have a morality tale but uh being made up or embellished i mean this stuff really happened and real people's lives were uh, affected or at stake so you've, you've written on other true crime topics in, in, in the past um so what made you decide to look at your you know the, the place where you live and and pick out you know 15 um little vignettes of true crime stories 
Well, these were some of the first cases I started to uh, to dig into uh, when I got into true crime. And uh, over the years, I just started to collect. I, I think I should place Nova Scotia for your listeners. Uh, well, it's an East Coast province, uh, east of Massachusetts. Uh, if you looked at a map of North America, there's something that sticks out almost like an appendage uh, just above uh, and, and east of Maine. And that's the province of Nova Scotia. It's virtually an island. There's only uh, uh, a few dozen miles uh, strip of uh, land that attaches us to mainland Canada. So it's a seafaring province. That meant there were lots of great stories about piracy and murder. And um, also it was one of the, uh, it was the first colony uh, in what became Canada settled, uh, that was settled or founded by uh, British. So it was the first part of what's now Canada to have uh, British common law. So we have an older legal history than the rest of Canada and uh, stretches back uh, to the mid uh, 1700s. And and I will say, because uh, I, very, I've been to Nova Scotia to Halifax very briefly as part of a cruise. I stopped in Halifax for six hours or whatever it was. Um, but some of the best seafood I've ever had in my life. <laughs> yes, the seafood is great. All right. Well, how did you, before we get into specific stories, uh, how did you go about researching? Well, um, sometimes uh, a chance reference. There's a couple of stories in this collection that uh, the cases were mentioned in court because law is all about precedent. So I've got one case where uh, the owner of a, a hotel in Halifax is charged with a crime of uh, basically a form of criminal negligence. He, had, he was accused of failing to take proper safety measures to keep the hotel safe. And in 1939, 28 guests died in a major fire. That was mentioned because of a case I was covering. So I, I was intrigued and went back and researched that. Um, once you start digging into old cases, others seem to pop up. Uh, if I go to a, a memoir by a, a judge or a lawyer looking for descriptions of characters in these stories or uh, to see if there's reference to the case, you trip over another case that looks intriguing. Um, I was also lucky that our archives here in Halifax, the Provincial Archives, has a card index that generations of archivists had kept and as they were poking around in Nova Scotia history if they saw an interesting case they put it on an index card now this is before the internet and this is this isn't digitized nice that, though. You, you couldn't google this but I could actually flip through uh, one of the old if you remember libraries that had card indexes I could flip through under crime Nova Scotia and uh, several cases came out of that, just uh, this little uh, potpourri of, uh, or this gold mine for me, of, uh, of cases. Some were interesting. Actually, that's how I found the story of Empire Deception, which is about a 1920 Chicago Ponzi schemer, highly successful, but when his scheme collapses, he comes up and hides out in Nova Scotia, spending his money as quickly as he can under an assumed name, and that's how I found his crazy story of this guy who claimed to have oil wells in Panama and hoodwinked hundreds, if not thousands, of people in Chicago for almost two decades. And that was all because there was a, came across a card. And I remember the day I did, clearly, because I thought, now there's a story. And I, I was right. 
That's amazing how you can just stumble upon those things by, by happenstance. Well, I, you know, I get asked sometimes, you know, where do you come up with these ideas? And, uh, uh, you know, they don't, they do come from, from digging. I mean, it comes from knowing where to look. I mean, if you know there's a card index like that. But also, uh, I, uh, I had an idle afternoon and I sat down with the uh, uh, bound, old leather bound uh, case, uh, case, uh, case reports for Nova Scotia. It doesn't have every case. It only would have a smattering of criminal cases. But I just leafed through and I found several in there just because the case report would say enough about it to say, okay, I should go back and find this. Once you've got the dates, unless you've got the advantage of digitized newspapers like you do now, once you have the dates, then you can pull up the newspapers. A lot of them are only on microfilm and then find the case, the, uh, the news reports and follow the case from there. All right. Well, let's uh, let's dive into some of these then. Um, you know, your your book's organized in uh, you know it's got some different sections dealing with uh, you know court trials and, and uh, bank robberies and um, disasters and so forth. Um, but which of all these stories? You, you have fifteen of them. Uh, which of these ones would you say is your favorite? Well, I think it has to be, and and this is uh, one that will resonate with your audience. Uh, it involves no lesser a figure than P.T. Barnum of circus fame. That was, that was the one I was going to for sure ask that we talk about. Well, in 1876, he, he set up his big top in Halifax for the first time. And this was huge. In a city of, of maybe uh, 10, 20,000, thousands and thousands and thousands of people, way more than the population, turned out over successive days to see the wonders, the exotic animals, the performers. And uh, one thing Burnham did, he'd come to town with a huge train and then to drum up business, not that there wasn't excitement about it, but he would uh, stage a parade through the center of whatever town he was in. So in the summer of 1876, to promote his show, uh, his circus wagons, the exotic animals, the performers all paraded through the center of Halifax and they went right by uh, the main branch of uh, one of the biggest banks in Halifax, the Bank of Nova Scotia. And the clerks inside couldn't resist the show. So they all grabbed their hats, ran outside to the sidewalk to watch the show. One of them was certain he locked the door behind him. And they were only out for about 15 minutes. The parade goes by. And when they come in, they start to go about their work and first one clerk realizes his cash box is gone. He accuses his, his, near, his desk neighbor of, of hiding the money as a prank. The other guy's money's gone. And as it turned out, more than $22,000, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's term were gone. And it had turned out someone had gone in the back while the bank was empty, cleaned out what desks he could, and made off with the money. That is uh, an amazing way of exploiting a distraction. <laughs> That's right. And uh, according to some of the press reports, this happened in other towns too. In fact, another office was robbed during the parade in Halifax. And a few days before in another town, another robbery had been committed. So there were even allegations or suggestions that there were robbers who followed in Burnham's wake 
using this distraction. Uh, and that, that certainly would make a lot of sense. Yeah. All right, so what about, um, you know, another section you talk about is disasters. Um, the very famous uh, Halifax explosion, which, which you talk about. I, um, when I was in grad school, I took a course on, um, a Canadian studies course, uh, which was really interesting. I was exposed to this, this idea of the, the Halifax explosion. Um, tell us a little, about, a little bit about that. that. That's just the grand scale event. Well, this is the, the, what happened in 19, in 1917 in Halifax. And Halifax was a major uh, assembly point for convoys in the First World War, as it would be in the second. And um, by chance, a, uh, a munition ship uh, laden with powerful explosives uh, was coming into the harbor at the same time uh, a ship uh, filled with supplies. Uh, it was Belgian relief ship. It was taking supplies to uh, uh, to uh, help uh, war torn Belgium. The munition ship was was only stopping in Halifax on its way overseas. The two ships collided in the harbor, right in the midst of the city. Nobody knew what was on board other than uh, the crew of this munition ship Mont Blanc, who, who fled in boats. Uh, within about 20 minutes, the boat exploded, and the ship exploded, and it was so much munitions that it was the largest man-made explosion before the atomic age. So before the tests that led up to Hiroshima, uh, it devastated the city, uh, flattened it in a way that on a smaller scale, would be reminiscent of what's left by an atomic bomb. In fact, it it, it was large enough to create a mushroom cloud. And um, almost 2,000 people died, and almost 10,000 more were, were, uh, were uh, injured, some of them horribly maimed for life, uh, many blinded because the fire in the harbor on the ship had attracted people to their windows. And as soon as the explosion happened, the shockwave sent glass flying into everyone's faces. So uh, a huge disaster. And why it's in a book about true crime is there was a hue and cry, especially in the press, some of the Halifax papers. Well, what had happened? This wasn't an act of God. How could these ships have collided? And there was an immediate search a demand that someone be held responsible. And in the wake of the explosion, the captain of the munition ship, the local pilot who was bringing it into the harbor, and uh, a government official who was in charge of har harbor traffic were all charged with manslaughter and prosecuted. So I actually survived the explosion. That's right, yeah. Okay. Because the Mont Blanc captain and crew uh, uh, did escape. They were roundly, of course, uh, reviled for surviving this disaster. And there was evidence that once they got to shore, they tried to warn people. But there was no, uh, there was no easy way to warn people in the harbor about what was there. Um, what became interesting to me in this case was, first of all, the, the power of the press to... Uh, uh, whip up uh, almost in hysteria. I mean, there were there was uh, allegations or or rumors that German agents that that this was sabotage. German agents were behind it. None of it was true. And what happened? These three men were only saved, as it turned out, as I did my research, because one judge went against the tide. Uh, a judge named Benjamin Russell of the Supreme Court 
who uh, had been involved in helping victims after the explosion. I mean, this affected the entire city. But he was determined that these three men wouldn't be scapegoats. And he even said in court, he said, are these men to go to prison because of a mistake? He goes, nobody intended for this to happen. And in fact, there was good uh, evidence that it wasn't the munition ship that was in fault. It was the other ship, the Belgian release ship, ship that hit it. Uh, that was at fault, was in the wrong place in the harbor. And ultimately, this judge put himself at considerable risk. I mean, he heard stories of people in the street basically making threats against him because there was so much understandable hurt in the community and, uh, and uh, outrage. So you can definitely do a lot of um, uh, analysis and how people people respond to tragedies and things that are very difficult to understand where we want to find a simple good guys, bad guys explanation for those types of things. And it was nice to, it was, it was, it was good, I think, to bring that dimension to this. Um, same with the uh, hotel fire I talked about. I mean, that's a dramatic story uh, and a disaster. In fact, that was the, the worst disaster in 1939 when this hotel burned down and 29 guests died. That was the worst disaster in Halifax after the Halifax explosion. They both led to, to criminal cases. But it, it also shows that, um, yeah, there's a variety of, of potential crimes that can come out of, uh, out of, out of tragedy. And, um, and again, there is a, a very human desire to see someone held accountable. And, and it, depending on the circumstances, that could indeed be justified. The um, uh, captain or crew or, or certainly the, the helmsman of the, uh, the ship that caused the Halifax explosion perhaps could have been prosecuted, but as it turned out, they died in the explosion. For some kind of negligence or something like that. Yeah, because, it, and again, in this case, it, the negligence may have existed, but it was directed against the wrong people who you know, really had the bad fortune, if you can call it that, but they'd survived. So these became, so the, the uh, uh, ire of the community and uh, the weight of the criminal law becomes focused on them. Uh, one thing that might give listeners a perspective on this, if they're not familiar with the Halifax explosion, is if, um, and I just thought about this as we're, as we're talking, the the Beirut explosion, which happened earlier this year, mm -hmm. uh, you know, somewhat of a similar circumstance. I don't know if it's comparable in terms of size, but you know, very quickly people were trying to you know ascertain who caused this, who uh, who's to blame. Yes, and and actually, listeners may have heard of the Halifax explosion because of that, because it was compared uh, similar uh, situation in the sense we're not talking wartime, we're talking about peacetime and some kind of uh, of absolute uh, uh, tragic convergence of events, negligence or otherwise. Uh, certainly, the death toll in the Beirut explosion uh, was much lower, but the devastation was very similar. And I can't um, can't emphasize enough what a what a an incredible uh, the scale of the disaster in Halifax. I mean, it was such complete devastation. I have a picture in the book that just shows what was a factory, and it's nothing but a you know a burned out shell, an empty shell with some uh, timbers in it, 
uh, you know, foundation, all that was left, totally raised this huge building. Um, but prior to the use of the atomic bombs in World War II, scientists actually came to Halifax and studied the Halifax explosion so they could better gauge what the impact was going to be of an atomic bomb on a populated area. So it was, it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was, it did happen during wartime. I did say peacetime, but it wasn't an act of war. I mean, Halifax was not, was, uh, and this of course compounded the tragedy. I mean, Halifax had been sending ships and, and, uh, had been, a, a embarking point for, uh, soldiers headed to war for, uh, most of the war. And then suddenly was tragically touched directly by what was happening overseas. Hey listeners, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Dean Job. Since the subject of today's episode is Nova Scotia, I felt like I would be remiss if I didn't tell you about one of my favorite podcasts, Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, uh, hosted by my friend, Canadian Girl, where she dives into some of Canada's most interesting history and mysteries. Check it out. Most people think nothing ever happens in Canada, but we know this is simply not true. Do you like myths, legends, or learning about some of Canada's greatest moments in history? Then this is the podcast for you. Join me, Canadian Girl, every two weeks as we travel around Canada exploring haunted places, searching for lost gold mines, trying to solve some true crime, and we even stop to observe historical events and people every now and again. Come on over to the channel today and join the crew by hitting that subscribe button. You don't want to miss out on our next adventure. That's Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, available on most podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and more. Uh, so you had mentioned the geography of Nova Scotia um, being a peninsula that's almost an island, really, um, mm -hmm. lends itself to, um, uh, you know, a lot of uh, seafaring, naval contact, and, and piracy. Um, can you tell us any stories about the, the seas around Nova Scotia? Well, there is a, there is a famous case um, of, the, uh, of a big ship called the Saladin that was on its way from Chile to uh, uh, England with a, with a cargo of guano, which uh, guano are, are uh, layers and layers of bird droppings left on islands off the coast of uh, Chile that were valued as fertilizer. Anyway, the uh, captain of this ship had encountered another sea captain who was between jobs and was desperate to get back to, Halifax, uh, to uh, England took pity on him and took him on as a passenger. Um, but uh, this captain, Mackenzie, of the Saladin would come to regret it because the passenger captain, Fielding, very quickly decided he wanted to take over the ship. There couldn't be two captains. And uh, he recruited enough of the crew to stage a mutiny. Kills the captain, few loyal sailors, their bodies are dumped overboard. And they decide they'll commandeer the ship and, and take it somewhere, maybe in Canada. Well, what happens over the ensuing days and weeks is distrust starts erupting within the mutineers. 
and fear that fielding the the new captain who seized power uh, may be not may not be done he may have no intention of sharing some of the more valuable cargo because there was money and then some uh, some uh, precious metals on board as well as cargo and there ends up to be a second mutiny where some of the men rise up they kill fielding and his son and some loyal followers this all becomes a Nova Scotia story because what had what had not been counted on is there weren't enough men left to properly crew and run this huge ship. It ends up running aground in Nova Scotia and rescuers go out and pull off the survivors and they quickly realize this doesn't make sense. There doesn't seem to be a captain and the excuse that he had fallen overboard in a storm doesn't wash. And a new story starts emerging as some of the uh, people who were really not involved in either mutiny, but had been coerced into going along with it and had, uh, had regretted it, started confessing. And ultimately, uh, four men uh, uh, were convicted and hanged in Halifax uh, for uh, their roles in this uh, piracy which, as I said, was two piracies on the same ship, or sorry, two mutinies on the same ship. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I mistakenly said piracy and mutiny in the same breath, and then that's because even though they're separate crimes, I mean, pirates don't have to be aboard the ship, like a mutineer would rise up within one ship. But the, the terms were used interchangeably, and they were very similar crimes, obviously, because the object was to seize a cargo or seize a ship, you know, piracy and mutiny were uh, uh, problems throughout the age of sail, uh, the 1800s, uh, uh, the uh, the real heyday of sailing ships, and uh, no place was immune. While uh, the Saladin case ends up in Nova Scotia by chance, by the ship running aground, there were other. Uh, there's a mutiny in Nova Scotia waters 20 years later that I deal with, and uh, it was a uh, it was a it was a serious crime, and of course it had serious implications for trade for uh, the security of cargoes, for the cost of goods. I mean, obviously, if, if ships could not, if ships, ships were already facing uh, enough uh, challenges and captains were, were dealing with the, the weather, with trying to get their cargoes through storms, there were enough losses without criminals actually creating more losses by uh, seizing ships. Well, if you have if you have time for one more story, um, yeah, we, we here in the U.S. Uh, have just wrapped up uh, a tumultuous uh, election season. We'll call it that. Uh, that's still ongoing here, uh, and you know, kind of the um, uh, if you talk to a person on the street, you know, it's one of the worst elections we've ever had. We're glad it's over. And then I read a chapter from your book about <laughs> chapter death at the polls. Uh, you know, from 1859, and um, you know, it makes me think, eh, not so bad. <laughs> well, this is a, a, a Nova Scotia election. Uh, uh, this is while Nova Scotia was still a British colony before it became part of Canada, and the backdrop to this was that uh, uh, our two political main political parties, the Liberals and Conservatives had become the parties of Catholics or Protestants. Uh, there was a huge sectarian divide in Nova Scotia, uh, high tensions, 
uh, a government had actually fallen over the issue of should there be separate schools for Catholics and Protestants, separate public-funded schools. And the bitterness of this boiled over into uh, the 1859 election. And at one particular polling station near Halifax, there was so much tension. There were a lot of government railway workers who were expected to support the government. They were Catholic. There were a lot of, uh, of Protestants in the, in the neighborhood, and that was now the party of the Liberals who were seeking power. And uh, in the days uh, leading up to it, there were threats, uh, weapons, guns, axe handles, uh, other weapons were stockpiled. And sure enough, two rival groups squared off at one polling station and it turned into a riot. Uh, men armed themselves with, with guns uh, and uh, weren't, weren't firing at each other. They were content to use the guns to beat each other or to beat each other with uh, clubs or throw rocks. But at one point, one, uh, one of the Catholics came at a Protestant uh, uh, liberal supporter with a large stone. Men, you know, told him to back off and he ended up leveling, leveling a gun and shooting him dead. So he was charged with murder and about a, a 10 of his uh, uh, people, of his friends and, and other people in the, uh, who were involved in the riot on the liberal side were charged as accessories. And it became a, a huge uh, court case and also a, politic, a politicized court case. So you had, you had sectarian hatred already, Protestant kills a Catholic. You have political uh, a political overtone, liberal kills a conservative, and the government of the day uh, having to decide, well, will it prosecute and how hard will it prosecute this, this case that has really split the province open? And uh, so, um, you know, I wrote that story quite a while ago, but it's, it's uh, uh, and, and this kind of violence wasn't unheard of in the 19th century elections, either in Canada or I believe the U.S., uh, but it, it may resonate. Uh, to, it certainly shows how bitter uh, feelings and how high feelings can run at an election time. Uh, now, what did this do for the for uh, the province? Did this uh, further escalate tensions, or did this uh, issue a wake up call to we, we need to calm down? Well, in the end. Um, it was difficult to get a jury that wanted to convict because strip it away, uh, there was a good defense of self-defense here. I mean, a gun, a gun is more final than a large stone perhaps, but uh, in the midst of the riot, it, it at least didn't seem like premeditated murder despite the fact people had armed themselves. And uh, in the end, only one man uh, stood trial and uh, was acquitted. Um, there were no lasting, I mean, there was bitterness from this, but uh, it did not set the tone for future Nova Scotia elections. It, uh, despite, uh, it was really a product of its time. Um, uh, the uh, religious uh, disputes and the religious uh, prejudice that had under, under, uh, underlaid it uh, settled down. And uh, again, it wasn't, uh, there were no repeats that I was able to find in future elections. So it was really a, a coming together of these various forces that, that would put 
uh, a group of Catholics and a group of Protestants in one place near where this railway was being built at a time when it wasn't going to take much to set off violence. Well, uh, this book is, has been a lot of fun uh, to read. I mean, I know they're, they're, they're true stories and a lot of times they're tragic in a lot of ways, but they're very interesting to learn about and you write them in, in, in such a way that they're very, uh, you know, they're very in, in, engrossing. They're very kind of um, captivating with some action involved sometimes. And uh, it's, it's definitely an enjoyable read. Well, that's another thing about uh, true crime. I mean, it's, uh, a lot of the facts are grim, but uh, I mean, some of it is stranger than fiction. The, uh, the high-ranking, the top banking official of, again, the Bank of Nova Scotia, uh, who uh, systematically ripped off the bank for 40 years and was never caught. <laughs> the, uh, the magistrate in, in uh, the early years of the 20th century in a small town who was known for his wisecracking from the bench uh, who was more of a stand-up comic than a judge, uh, which of course has a lot of humor, but it also, I found it was a way to talk about the professionalization of the, of the judiciary in Nova Scotia, because here was a man who was renowned more for his common sense. He didn't have a legal degree. He didn't, he didn't need a law degree or, or experience in those days. But uh, by the time his career ended, uh, the judges of this court were required to be legally trained. So it showed a development. But, uh, but yeah, some of these, uh, some of these stories, uh, uh, you know, if they, they may have some grim black humor, but, uh, you know, there's also some pretty uh, uh, unbelievable situations that, uh, that end up before the courts. Um, all right. Well, any, uh, do you have any other uh, projects in the hopper? I do, actually. I've got, uh, well, I'm already talking to uh, my publisher here in Nova Scotia about a sequel to Daring Devious and Deadly, because it's been doing quite well. Um, but I have another uh, longer term project uh, that's coming out with Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill uh, in, uh, in uh, the summer of 2021, so next summer. And it's another true crime story. It's called uh, The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, who was uh, a, a little known but prolific Victorian era serial killer. He was, uh, uh, grew up in Canada, was trained at McGill University Medical School in Montreal, and started killing people. He started using what he had learned about poisons to uh, poison uh, mostly women. He uh, killed a, a couple of women, at least in Canada. Uh, when he had to flee Canada, he ended up in Chicago, and uh, in Chicago, and then uh, and then a place called Belvedere towards the Wisconsin border. He claimed another victim. In total, he killed at least four people in uh, the Chicago area. Uh, went to prison, and uh, when he was released, when he was pardoned, which was a huge mistake. He went to England in the early 1890s and started poisoning women there. And uh, he preyed on women in a, in a rather poor neighborhood called Lambeth, and he became notorious as the Lambeth Poisoner. And this was all only a couple of years after Jack the Ripper had eluded capture. So one of the questions I, I wanted to answer, and I hope I've answered in the book, is 
how could this man have gotten away with it for so long? I mean, he was even before the courts, he was acquitted of one of his murders. And it really led me to understand or to dig into the forensics, how crude they were at the time, but were developing, and also detection. Because ultimately, Scotland Yard had to track this guy down, not realizing and not really sure who it was. Being a doctor, it was hard for people to get their mind around that he should be a suspect. And ultimately, Scotland Yard sent an officer to North America, which uh, uh, was able to unravel this, uh, these past uh, six murders, if not more. So anyway, that's the story I tell uh, next time. And uh, it says a lot. Again, it's a window in the past. It says a lot about um, uh, forensics and detection at the time, but also a lot about what life was like and, and the stigmatization of, of young women who were forced to go to a doctor like this and uh, uh, this uh, heinous character and uh, because many, some of them were looking for abortions uh, or uh, some of them were just uh, uh, had nowhere else to turn. Uh, which is really cool. You can extrapolate these, these broader commentary on, on society at the, at the time through this, through this story. Yeah, and I like I said, I think that's that's important because you know these are real people, these are real tra- tragedies, but I, I think it's important to look for that lesson to be learned. So as I said, you know that the, there is the uh, uh, the tragic and and dramatic story of the murders this this uh, Doctor Cream commits, but I really thought that the story is. How does he get away with it so long? What does that say about the state of forensics detection society at the time? And ultimately, how was he brought to justice? And there's a, there was a thick uh, Scotland Yard file I was able to consult at the archives in London that, uh, that just showed uh, the difficulty Scotland Yard had uh, with its limited tools at the time of trying to figure out who was responsible one of his murders for months even had been thought to be a suicide. So I was able to unravel all of the uh, uh, roadblocks and stumbling blocks that they'd, they'd faced. But ultimately, even after Jack the Ripper, it was hard for police in London to, to get their mind around the fact they were dealing with another serial killer. And that's another part of the story is that this was a new phenomenon. It would be almost another century. It would be the 1980s before the term serial killer became common because nobody really knew how to classify this kind of monster. And Cream very much uh, was one of these first of this new breed of monster that we've come to. uh, Unfortunately, it has become so much more common, the serial killer. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, you have a standing invitation to come back on the, <laughs> on the podcast when that comes out next year. I'd appreciate it. All right. Well, um, uh, Dean, thank you again for uh, taking the time to speak to us. Uh, fascinating as always. The book again is Daring, Devious, and Deadly, True Tales of Crime and Justice from Nova Scotia's Past. Uh, and if people want to get a copy of the book, or to learn more about you, uh, where can they go? Go to my website, www.deanjobe, and the last name is jobb.com. But it's available online. Uh, it's available Amazon, available everywhere, and uh, certainly for order. 
if anyone out there is having any trouble finding it, uh, send me an email through the website or, uh, or uh, find, find me through Twitter and uh, I'll help you with it. But uh, um, yeah, so it should be pretty easy to order. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on the program. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Appreciate it. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. A uh, big thank you again to Dean Job for coming back on the program. Uh, again, his book, uh, Daring, Devious, and Deadly, True Tales of Crime and Justice from Nova Scotia's Past. If you would like to get a copy of the book, uh, I have a link uh, to the book in the description of this episode in your podcast app. Uh, that takes you over to IndieBound.org. And that will put you in touch with your local bookstore, uh, who, of course, could definitely use your support uh, going into this holiday season. And then again, if you want to listen to my other episode with Dean, uh, there's also a link for that down in the description as well. As always, if you want to connect to the show on social media, I am on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all at CMTU History. Uh, I would love to hear from you, uh, talk about history in general, or hear your thoughts about the podcast. If you are a fan of the podcast and you would be so inclined, uh, please leave a review wherever you listen. Uh, I love seeing those reviews, and they are very helpful in getting word out about the podcast to people who haven't heard it before. And then if you're interested in uh, getting access to some extra content, uh, check out the show's Patreon page. Uh, at patreon.com slash cmtuhistory. I'm in the process of developing some good uh, extra material there for you guys as well. All right, that's it from me. Uh, until next time, stay safe and take care. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.